Greetings. In Jesus' name, that is part of the service. That's just meditating on those words. Prayer will change your night today. Now, what happens when you pray if it changes your night today? That means all your problems will go away. What happens? Why does your night turn today? I don't know if God actually promises that. That's a songwriter's rendering. But it takes exactly what Wayne was telling this morning. It takes the focus off your own self. It takes your little, little world that you have and that you're worried about and concerned about and are troubled about. And finally, you can't control anymore. And you give it to the one who can. And your night turns today. Don't forget to pray. So, why don't we do that right now? Let's pray. Lord, we look to you this morning. We are thankful that you have not left us to ourselves because we do not have what it takes both to live in this world and to please you. Lord, we as ourselves, we wither. As ourselves, we do not bear fruit. But Lord, we thank you this morning that we by your grace, can be tapped into the vine and grow and prosper and bring forth much fruit. And as your word says, that our fruit might remain. It's lasting. It's permanent. It's eternal. So, Lord, we look to you this morning to bless our time here together, to bless our time, each one of us, that it would be a worthwhile time to come together as your people, as your saints, to gather together, to pray, to worship, and to hear your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would make it worthwhile for each one of us. I pray, Lord, you would bless my own tongue and lips, and, Lord, that you would breathe upon your word, that it would become both understanding and effectual in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, as you know, I do appreciate that, uh, that opening there. One statement that uh, Wayne made, he said, longing uh, people of God, they long for a closer walk with God, and it doesn't happen by accident. And I thought of those words in Hebrews where it says, labor to enter into rest. Tim, is that one of the paradoxes you're talking about? I don't know where Tim is this morning. There you are. Okay, talking about the paradoxes of the kingdom. That's one of them. Labor to enter into rest. This morning, 
you can turn to 1 Corinthians 7. And I'm going to speak on singleness and marriage. That's the title, on singleness and marriage. I have several goals I'd like to accomplish this morning. That while I find it easier to teach topical messages, I sense the need of myself to have a little more discipline to go verse by verse and teach the scripture. If for no other reason than to just get me off of my hobby horses. If you do, I don't know how it is for uh, some of you who preach regularly, but if you have a hobby horse, your mind tends to dwell that way. So if you're seeking the Lord, then your mind goes that way, and then you can have just different flavors of the same item. That happens to me. So sometimes it's good to uh, go to a scripture and go down, pull out a scripture, what it says, and go down that line. I think I heard of somebody who had a hobby horse. It was... I don't I don't remember the exact details, so some of the details aren't going to be correct, but I think his hobby horse was believer's baptism. Let's say it that way. So on his Sunday morning, he has a message, and today we're going to preach out of Genesis, such and such a chapter in Genesis. And the first point is Esau, uh, his bad decision. The second point is Esau, the consequences of a bad decision. And the third point is, we're going to talk about believer's baptism out of Genesis, such and such. So he always sought to get it in there, so I hope I can keep away from that. But I chose this chapter because also I was suggested to address the topic of singleness. And this chapter does that. But it addresses marriage also and divorce and remarriage, and a lot of many other issues. Till I'm done with this, you might wish for me to go back to my old method. I'm not sure. But I like this letter of 1 Corinthians. Um, The Corinthians were real people in a real world with real life issues, just sort of like us. And they had some questions. Do you ever have any questions? you ever wish you could ask the Apostle Paul some questions? They did, but they could ask him, and they did ask him some questions. William Penn started the colony of Pennsylvania, and... He stayed in Pennsylvania less than two years. That's all the time he was there at the most. I don't know if he was here once or twice. I don't remember his whole story, but less than two years of what he spent in the colony that he established. That's the same as Apostle Paul. He started this church, but he spent about a year and a half there. That's all he did. Then he went away. But there was concerning, uh, there was correspondence going back and forth. And so he heard He heard from the household of Chloe what was going on, the divisions that they had, the 
the immorality that was in the church, the lawsuits that were going on, and some other issues. He heard about that. But they also wrote him a letter. And in that letter, I don't know what all was, but they asked him a number of questions. So, they could do what we couldn't do. They asked the Apostle Paul some questions. And they got an answer. And that first answer is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. I'm actually just going to go down, just for a little bit of a Bible study, I'm going to go down the rest of the questions that they ask him. The second question is actually, I believe, if I'm correct, I, it's not extremely clear, but the second question that they would have asked that he answered is in verse 25 of, verse, of chapter 7. It says, now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord, and yet I give my judgment. And then he gives the answer for the rest of that chapter. The third question is in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffed up, but charity edifieth. And so they were asking him a simple question. We have a disagreement here, Paul. We, some of us here, think it's okay to eat meat that has been offered to an idol. And some of us here believe it's actually a sin. So, what do you think? Is this a yes or a no answer? Well, not quite, because Paul spends three chapters, and he digs past the question and goes into the deeper issues behind it. Now, the fourth question is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You don't have to turn there. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. So, they had a question about gifts. And what follows again is a three chapters of probing, digging answers, including the love chapter. And then the fifth question is in 1 Corinthians 16.1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. So they had some kind of question about the collection, and then he gives council concerning collecting money and some things surrounding that. But this morning, we'll look at the first question that Paul was asked by them. And so I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 7 from verse 1 down to verse 16. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the husband, the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power over his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one, and one the other, except it be with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt ye not for your incontinency. But I speak this by permission and not of commandment, for I would that all men were even as I myself. But every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. 
I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord, if any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shouldest save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shouldest save thy wife? The first question. Concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is a good for a man not to touch a woman. That's how we know that the church at Corinth wrote a letter to Paul. That's how we know. He said, concerning the things you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, first things first. What do they mean when he says it is good for a man not to touch a woman? What does that mean? Does that mean I can't shake your hands? Can I give my daughters a fatherly hug? Does it mean that all females should have a female doctor? Does it mean hands-off courtship? It is good for a man not to touch a woman, and you probably, some of you probably know that it's a euphemism for singleness, not being married while at the same time being pure. That's what that phrase means. It's a euphemism. If you read the history, you will find the city of Corinth was a moral cesspool. It was both a major trading center, which means had travelers coming in from all over the world, away from their homes, away from their families, away from their spouses, and they had that normal things going that comes when sailors get around in uh, far away from home. And then it was also an idolatrous city, which had its own um, cottage culture of immorality in in their in their uh, temples and so on. In fact, another euphemism of the day was to live like a Corinthian meant to live in gross immorality. So it's a euphemism. It is good for a man to be single. To not be married in a pure way. 
If you read 1 Corinthians, the whole thing, you will know that they had many problems, even inside the church, as far as moral issues. And as I studied, there were four views of marriage in that era, and Paul refutes all four of those views of marriage. And we'll go down, and this will be one of the ways how we'll organize this. The first is the Jewish view. That view basically held that it was an obligation for a man to get married. It was a command from God for a young man to get married and have a family children. In fact, in Genesis, God says to be fruitful and multiply. And for a young man not to do that was to disobey God. That was the Jewish view. And so every young man had the moral responsibility to get married, get a wife, and Fulfill the great procreation. That a variation on the great commission. So that's one view. The other view is the ascetic view. The ascetic view is the view that holds that the physical union of a man and a woman is inherently unclean or unholy. Since it comes from, the, in their mind, the base or the central nature of mankind, to be really, truly holy, you need to be celibate. You need to be single. You must not enter into a marriage. And... Uh, we, we know, if you know history, you know that in the medieval times, this was very strong, and you had it even locally in the Seventh-day Adventists down at the cloister, where people would join that cloister. They would actually leave their marriages, some people would, and join it because, in their view, if they had the ascetic view of marriage. So... Stay single, this view is. If you are married, leave that inherently defiling situation and live as a single. The number three view is libertine view. This view held a low view of the covenant of marriage that it could easily be broken and redone. This is the divorce and remarriage viewpoint that it is. Um, these people felt themselves free to break the marriage covenant if they chose and enter a new one, even multiple times. Then we have the fourth view. I'm not quite sure which view. I'm going to call it the, the legalist view. 
You could also call it the wooden view, which is a stiff view. This view holds that, strongly holds to the idea is don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So that means if you are a Christian and your partner is not, you need to separate from your partner. You need to divorce your partner. Do what Ezra told the people to do. When, when the Jewish people married what the King James Version calls outlandish wives, heathens, they were brought face to face with their sin in Ezra's day, and they were told, you need to separate. And so the legalist view is, if you're a Christian and your partner is not, you need to separate. This is an unholy union. Do not remain married to an unbeliever. So, as I said, Paul deals with each, is deals with each one of these views in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. And so, for the first question, with all this mess around us, we can talk about locally in Corinth, with all the mess that's around us, isn't it just better to stay single, Paul? Should we stay single? Is it better to be single? Is it actually intrinsically, uh, morally superior? To be single. Yes? No? Maybe so? All of the above. (laughs) Paul affirms it is good to remain single. It is good not to marry. Why, Paul, is it good to remain single? Can you... In a congregation, I don't know if you want to talk or not. Can you think of any good reasons to stay single? Go in the mission field. Why can you go in the mission field? What's the difference? Okay, okay. You have more freedom to go to the mission field. Got ya. Okay. Any other reasons? Yes. So, you can be in ministry better with a lower income or whatever you call it, or more time to devote to it, or whatever you call it. More time to devote to it. Okay, good. You can serve the Lord without distraction, the Bible says later on in this chapter. Okay? How about in times of persecution? Is it better to be single? If you're chased and hunted down and, and like the Apostle Paul sitting in the Philippian prison, singing at midnight, do you think it might be harder to sing at midnight if you had a wife and children at home? I don't know. Could be. I think it could be. You might be happier. And I'm not pulling that out of midair. Go down to verse 40. Verse 39 says, she is free to marry anyone in the Lord, but she is happier if she so abides singly. So you might be happier if you don't get married. Talking about a widow in this case. 
So, you can serve God with more focus and less distraction. It is a spiritual gift. Should I say spiritual? It's a gift. And we all like gifts of God, don't we? The most miserable people are not single, single people who wish they were married. They are married people who wish they were single. So there are numerous benefits in being single and free. Now, of the few views here that we have, which one do we, in general, us, ascribe to? Which one's the closest? One, two, three, or four? Four. Okay. That wasn't the one I picked. <laughs> okay. Oh. Just split up an unbeliever. Okay. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think it's number one. Most of us expect to get married, and we put a high value on families and a high value on children. We do. Uh, not to the extent that the Jews did, that they thought it's a sin not to get married. Not to that extent, but that would be the closest one that we have. In other words, we tend to view singles as, I'm going to use sports analogies this morning, Uh, minor league. The married people are the major league. They're the ones really in the middle of what's going on. And then there's minor leagues. There's the singles. Or another analogy is you have your, in sports, you have your first string, then you have your second, you have the people on the team, then you have your second string. Those are the ones on the sidelines that if they're needed, they're called on. But they didn't make the first string. They're sort of second class. We don't say that. We tend to think that way a little bit. Some of us more than others. I don't know if you you noticed it, but Paul flips this thing right on its head. He flips that thing right on its head. And he puts the singles as first class and the married as a second class. That's interesting. Singleness is viewed as the ideal, the apex of life, the epitome of what you can have for God. So marriage is permissible, but singleness is the true epitome of life. As a Christian single, you will have more resources available for use in the kingdom, either of time or money or talents. You can much easier serve in faraway places and for longer periods of time. Singles are less tied down to a job because they are not responsible for the welfare of a spouse or a family. Paul was a scorcher of an example of this. He said, this one thing I do, forgetting which is behind me and reaching forth to the prize of what I've been called for. And that calling was different for him as a single than it would have been for a married person. And like I said, he could spend his nights in jail and sing probably a little better than some of us could. Another example of a book that I read recently is Helen Rosevere a missionary medical doctor in the Congo was another example of 
dedication of a single woman. It is doubtful she could have done what she did if she would have got her wish of marriage. So, for you Jews who think that it's an obligation to get married, it is that you think it's not that it's a sin not to get married. Think again. Paul resolutely refutes position number one. In fact, Jesus Christ does too. He was a single man, and he was single on purpose. It was God's will. He did not fulfill the great procreation, but he started the great commission. But, but, but wait a minute. Maybe you're saying by now, I know the Bible too. And I know the Bible says it is good for a, not good, it's not good for a man to be alone. Does the Bible say that? Yeah. And somewhere in the Bible, I know it says that a man who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor of the Lord. And I like favors of the Lord, so I want a wife. So what's going on here? How can we pull this together? Well, the short answer is this. There are good reasons to stay single, and there are good reasons to get married. And one good reason to stay single that was specifically for the Corinthians, and you need to actually keep this in mind, is in verse 26. And it's not part of what I read, but I'd like to look at it. And he says here, talking about virgins and remaining single, and he says, I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. I say it is good for a man to be so. And what I want to bring out is the present distress. There were persecutions and trials were part of the early Christians. And within 15 years from the time this letter was written, Nero was in a full-blown persecution of the church. And there was distress now, and there was more distress coming. And Paul said, you may get married, but you're going to have trouble if you get married. So for the present distress, consider not getting married for that reason. So besides the other benefits of being single, here's another one. Okay, verse 2. Nevertheless, now we would say today, but. Here is a but. It is good to stay single. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. And then there's a but. But what? But to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and every woman have her own husband. So what's going on here? How can we answer the question that the benefits of singleness and the benefits or the God's blessing on marriage? Well, basically, Paul is saying that singleness has its benefits, but singleness is not for everyone. While on the one side, he says some people really should consider staying single, seeing all the benefits of it. On the other side, some people should not stay single because of the peculiar dangers of singleness. 
Just as there are troubles and restrictions associated with marriage, there are dangers associated with singleness. Singleness is a gift, and not everyone has that gift. In fact, most people don't. And if someone tries to remain single that does not have that gift, he or she lives in for a frustrated life. Now, I found a lengthy quote from a uh, Protestant in the 1500s dealing with the Catholic tradition of having celibate priests. Now, if you know anything about the recent troubles of the Catholic Church, you will realize it sounds uncannily up to date, even though it's about 450 years old. So here's the quote. The clergy were not permitted to marry because marriage did not seem to be in keeping with the holiness of their order. They had this view. The Catholics had that view. Number two. Here goes the quote. God punishes those who despise marriage and make rash vows of everlasting celibacy. He punished them first by the secret fires of lust and then with horrible and filthy practices. But because ministers of the church were barred from lawful marriage, the result of this arbitrariness has been that the church has been deprived of many good and faithful ministers. For honest and wise men would not put themselves into a trap. At last, after a long period of time, Lust, which until then had been repressed, gave off their stench. It was not enough that those in whose case it was a capital offense to have a wife maintained mistresses with impunity, but no home was safe because of the lustfulness of the priest. But even that was put in the shade, for unnatural and outrageous things came into the open, things of which it is better to bury in everlasting oblivion than to mention, even by way of example. I won't make mention who gave that quote, because you might stop listening to me. It is okay to eat the watermelon and spit out the seeds, right? This is a very seedy guy, but this is watermelon. In sight of what happens is someone, for whatever reason, chooses to stay single when he does not have the gift. Singleness is an ideal state, but it has peculiar dangers and pitfalls, and therefore it is not for everyone. So, let each man have his own wife and every woman have her own husband. Why? Well, to avoid what we just said in that long quote. God says, there has no temptation overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And he will, with the temptation, make a way of escape. Well, for many, this is the way of escape. To get married. Take it. This is the theme through the whole chapter. Paul lifts, as he lifts up the benefits of singleness, he never puts the snare of celibacy on anyone. 
So let each man have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And I like to bring out own here. Own wife and own husband is in singular. That means something, not to us very much today, but it does mean something back then. It means no polygamy. A wife, it is her own husband. She is not sharing it with another one. It is her own. Number verse 3. So let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the husband, the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except to be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourself to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt ye not. People who say the Bible is not relevant to our day must not be reading the Bible. This is very relevant. But some people might say, okay, I'm married and I will not divorce my spouse, but because physical relationships are inherently unclean, we're going to be married, but we're going to sleep in separate bedrooms. That was the thing he's dealing with here. Married, but live as singles. No, no. Marriage is not commanded. It's permissible, but it's not commanded. If you are single, you need to behave in certain ways as a single. As a single, you may not behave in ways that, like you're married. But if you are married, you may not behave in certain ways as a single. You can't do that. You now, as a married person, have the obligation to continually and habitually satisfy your spouse in the physical realm. And why is that? Well, he explains here, the wife does not have power over her own body and the husband does not have power. There are two Greek words that uh, the English word, when it's translated power in English, there's two Greek words that it normally is. It could be one or the other. The one word power is the word that we know dunamis. It's the one which has strength and might and power. The word we get dynamite from. The other Greek word that is often translated power is the word authority or um, a right to rule or a position. It is that word that Jesus used in the Great Commission. He said, all power is given to me. He means all authority is given to him. He has all authority. He has all right. He has all rule. All of it. And when we look at this word power... It means authority. So, a wife no longer has sole authority over her body. She shares it with her husband. And the husband does not have sole authority over his body, but the wife has a share. The NIV brings it out the best as I understand it. And it's, and I'm going to read it here. The wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. 
you know, we are still accountable to God with our own body. No one can make you do what you say or feel or believe is wrong. You are responsible before God. But when, as a single, you have that responsibility exclusively. But when you go to the marriage altar, when you go and you share those vows with each other, you relinquish sole authority of your body to your partner. And as far as I can tell, most of the time, all of the time, they do it gladly. That's usually not a problem. I'm wondering, oh, I'm not sure if I want to do this. That's usually not the problem. They do it willingly. They do it joyously. But let me ask you this. Does that excitement and that feelings and that exuberance last through your whole life? How long does it last? Well, it varies. But eventually, some of that goes away. And so Paul needed to say, this is a responsibility. It's an obligation. 30 years ago, before cell phones, I was working for a company that uh, we had trucks that went out on the farms. And we used two-way radios to communicate with each other, other trucks, and also to the, to the base work. These radios were like a party line. There were other parties that used the same channel. Now, the way it worked is like this. You had, a, they had this two-way radio, and then you had a mic, and you put the mic on a hook. And when the mic was on the hook, you could, hear, you could not hear any of the other parties. You could only hear your own company. And so you put the mic on the hook, and if someone called you, like your boss called you from home, you could hear it, and you would answer. If you wanted to call back, you had to take the mic off the hook and listen for a few seconds at least to make sure no one else is talking because of the party line. Well, what us young fellows did as we got bored out there is we left the hook, left the mic off the hook so we could listen to everybody. I don't recommend this, but that's what we did. And there was one farming couple on this party line that was having obvious marriage problems. One day, she called her husband while he was out in the tractor or combine or someplace. And she's asking if he's alone. He said, no, he'll be alone soon. He knew what was coming. After a little bit, he called her back and said, okay, I'm alone now. And then she asked him, what did you do with my ring? And he said, well, because of what you did last night, I just thought I'd take it. And she said, you could hear the tears in her voice. She said, are you going to give it back? And I don't remember the full dialogue anymore, but basically the the point was, yeah, but you better shape up. Now, that man was blackmailing. He was manipulating his wife. Taking something away from her that was very precious to her so that he could get what he wanted, whatever it was, from her. 
reminds me also of that book that I read recently, The Land of the Blue Burqa, where uh, a Muslim woman confided with that author that her husband doesn't beat her anymore. He did the first years of their marriage, and they get married very young. She might have only been 12 or 15 years old when she got married, and her husband beat her. But he doesn't anymore. She's very thankful. And the author's assumption was is that because this wife learned what the husband wants and therefore complied to whatever it is, and he stopped beating her. And so they got along in that, that stage. And the beating stopped. Paul says we can do the same thing in marriage. For manipulation, for control, to inflict punishment, a partner can withhold himself or herself from the other. Or just because of disinterest or busyness or distraction, one partner can deprive the other of a rightful privilege. And Paul commands, don't do that. You have no right to withhold from your partner what belongs to him or her. Do not defraud one another. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were commanded to bring the tithes to the Lord. Ten percent. It was the Lord's. And here in um, Malachi... So they had 100% of their wealth, but only 90% of it belonged to them. 10% belonged to the Lord. Malachi 3, 8 and 9, I'll read a few verses here. And uh, this is the controversy that God is having with his people. He said, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? Well, in tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse because ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. You know, when the Israelites did not give to God what rightfully belonged to God, they had a little extra money. But with that little extra money, they got a curse. They got a curse because they didn't give what belonged to God. It didn't belong to them. In marriages where defrauding goes on, some control may be gotten by manipulation, by You might actually get, in the short term, what you want. But you'll bring a curse on your marriage. And you can go out in relationships in any form or shape of any kind. Manipulation. Anytime there's a manipulation of a dozen different kinds to get what you want, it might work short term it will always cost long-term. The benefit is always dwarfed by the enormous end cost in that relationships. Defraud ye not one and the other, except to be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourself to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt ye not for your incontinency. There is one exception, but it is by consent. One party does not inform the other party, oh, I'm going to be fasting in prayer for a while. Just, 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 I'm going to let you alone for a while because it's, no, no. By consent, 
you can do a very specific thing by consent with each other. And it's for a time. It's not open-ended. It's a limited time. And it's for a specific purpose. That's the exception. I'm not a marriage counselor, and by now, some of you are probably glad I'm not. But I've heard of marriage counselors dealing with couples that have had physical relations with each other for months, sometimes years, and it was never for this reason, never. Okay, let's go on. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 6 to 9. But I speak this by permission and not a commandment. For I would that all men were even as I myself. But every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner, another after that. I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Here we go right back to the beginning. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. But Paul understands that the most desirable, the most ideal, is not always the most practical. We can raise up ideals. Wouldn't it be better if nobody would marry? Everybody could serve the Lord with their whole life. Go teach school, go to the mission field, no distractions. You could go and win the lost, you could win the nations, you could win the tribes. Nobody gets married. Let's just all just go. Just think of that. What an ideal. Well, let's calm down and let's face reality. Paul knew how to face reality. He did not super spiritualize things to the extent that he became disconnected with reality. Sometimes we have ideals. And I know we talked about this. This is the good afternoon, Sunday afternoon discussion. Is the ideal a reality? Is it realism? Or is it idealism? And I say we need ideals. But we also need real. I mean, will revival solve all your problems? Will, um, I could go down a lot of ways. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay safe. I'm gonna stay away from some things I'm thinking of right now. Cause I might get in trouble. But, we have ideals. But sometimes we need to have some reality in it. Paul did. It's a good example. Paul said, it is better to be single. And I have my example to prove it. But the reality, the practical, on-the-ground reality is, it's not for everybody. So he said, you have permission to marry but you don't have to marry. If you have to give the singleness, by all means, use it. But if not, then by all means, avail yourself of the alternative and pursue marriage. Interesting here, he says he wishes for the widows not to marry here. 
In 1 Timothy 5.14, Paul advises, and I'm going to read that. I will, therefore, that the younger women, that's actually widows in context. I will that the younger widows marry, bear children, guide the house, and give no occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. And so here he's saying it's better if the widows and the singles don't marry. Somewhere else he is saying it is better if they marry. Well, in that context, the widows were going from house to house. They were being busybodies. They were um, talking too much. And they were idle. And they were doing ungodly things. It's one of the dangers of singleness. If you're not connected to some kind of whatever vision, then singleness can be a detriment to you. If you're not connected to a purpose in life, singleness is not good. So he tells them to marry. So there can be numerous reasons to marry. Actually, one of marriage's purposes is to maintain purity in a purifying world. This world is corrupt. It is impure. Marriage is a way of dealing with that. Another is procreation, which is having children, which does synchronize well with God's purpose of desiring people to fellowship with and increase his kingdom. Another reason for marriage is for partnership and companionship. And so is pleasure, if you go to the Song of Solomon's in Proverbs 5. And marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. The most glorious picture of marriage of all together is that of Christ. He is the groom, the church is the bride, and, and that whole picture there. And as Paul Washer insists, marriage is God's main method of getting the pride and selfishness and flesh out of the husband. (laughs) I I don't know if I got that from the scripture. I I got that from someone else. Okay. But I think it does work. But the whole purpose of everything we do is what? Well, Colossians says, and, and whatsoever you do in word or deed, whether you're married or single, whether you're, Whatever stage of life you are, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. He's our Lord, and we belong to him. We are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. Okay, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 10 to 11 here now. Unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband, but and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. Marriage is for life. The covenant of marriage is permanent. And he says it's directly from the Lord. He says, I don't say it, the Lord says it. And sure enough, it's exactly what Jesus said. You go to Mark chapter 10, verse 9, and some other places in the Gospels, he will say, 
Um, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. What God joined together, let not man put asunder. That same that word put asunder is the same word as it says, let not the wife depart. Depart, put asunder. The same thing. Paul was saying exactly the same thing Jesus was saying. So he says, it's not I saying it, it's the Lord saying it. But recognition is given that for specific reasons, such as perpetual unfaithfulness or in dangerous situations, it may be necessary for a Christian to leave a spouse. In a real world, Paul was very practical, and he said there are going to be situations where you need to leave. But if you leave, remain unmarried, because marriage is permanent, or be reconciled. You have, if you leave, you have an option, uh, two options, stay, unma- stay uh, unmarried or be reconciled. Those are your two options if you leave your partner. And so, Paul is refuting the libertine view of marriage. Absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. The covenant of marriage is permanent. Now, if you are single, you are not under the obligation of this marriage. But once you are married, this is it. That's why the disciples, when Jesus was teaching, you know, in the Old Testament, you could get a divorce. You could be a variety of bill divorcement. Jesus pushed the reset button and he said, back in the beginning, it was not so. And he gave this permanent view of marriage and the disciples reacted to it and said, whoa, if that's the case, if you're in this for life, it might not be better. It might, it might be better not to get married. This sounds pretty tight. There's no way out of this. Maybe it'd be better not to get married. And you know what Jesus said? Exactly the same thing Paul did. He said, yes, he said, but not everybody can receive that saying. It's good not to get married. He was okay with that. But not everybody can live unmarried. And so, therefore, many will get married. But if you get married, this is it. This is how it functions. Marriage is permanent. So Paul and Jesus were right together. Libertines, you do err. Okay, verses 12 to 16. But to the rest be I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were the children were your children unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now in this portion, we will, add, we will address view four, the legalist view, which, did I not give that view? Did I explain it? I did explain it. Okay, I thought maybe because of what you said, I forgot it. 
it is in, inherently unholy to be with a partner that is not a Christian. And here Paul says it's not the case at all. Now, but before we get to there, he has an interesting beginning here. He says, to the rest speak I, not the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Before that, he said, it's not me speaking, it's the Lord speaking. Now he's saying, well, now it's me speaking, not the Lord. What do you make of that thing? Did you ever settle that in your heart? Who, 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 which of you understand, think you understand what it means? Okay, good. You want to stand? No. <laughs> well, you, you, you tell me you agree with me then. Okay, okay. So, why does Paul specify that this is of the Lord, and then he says this is not of the Lord? Well, Paul's being honest here. With the prior issue, Jesus taught on it specifically. He said marriage is permanent, and once you're married, you're married for life. And there's a few areas where you can separate, but don't remarry. It's exactly what the Lord said. Now he's saying... The Lord never spoke on this particular issue. But as an apostle, I am giving you the direct will of God. What he is doing is he is taking the Lord's command and he is amplifying it or he is making deductions or um, I can't think of the exact applications. That's right. To a premise. He is making applications. He takes the premise that marriage is permanent. Therefore, remain with a spouse that does not share your faith because the marriage bond is permanent. Then he adds the reality that separation or divorce does occur at time. And the conclusion is that such event is handled in the most persuasive method that a believing partner. I'm not saying that right, but that, that separation takes place in the way that will be the most conducive for that partner to possibly come back sometime. But this whole thing brings up an interesting, um, can't think of a word either, but we're all faced with applying scripture in a modern age that that the Bible does not speak about directly. So, So it behooves us, like the Apostle Paul, to be filled with the Spirit, to understand the foundational, permanent premises of God's Word, the truth. Understand that, and then make applications for our day and our age. You must go, you must go beyond chapter and verse application. You must. Paul did it in this case, as I think, as an example. If we don't, we will miss much of God's will. Now, we know that this application can be abused. We know that. But so can marriage. We're still getting married. So, we need to prayerfully and honestly and corporately discern God's will in every area of life. Never say 
that the Bible does not address that certain issue until you have studied the word and then say it has no premise. Then you can say that. Back to an unbelieving spouse. He or she is willing to stay with you if they are willing. Is to stay with you if they are willing. But the question is raised, especially by the Jews, which the Jews would also have the legalist view that the one in four was specifically for the Jewish, while the, while the two and three could have been more specifically to the Gentiles, although not exclusively. But the question is raised, does not my union with an unbeliever make me unclean? Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. And will not the children that are birthed in such a union be unclean because they came from an unclean person? And then they have a scripture. And I'm going to read Haggai chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. And this is, again, a God is, the prophet is using an example here. I'm just going to read it. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt doth touch bread, or pottage, or wine, or oil, or any meat, shall it also be holy. So you have a case where you have some holy flesh in your garment. You're carrying it. That's what I pictured like an apron. And as you go along, you brush some other things. Well, everything you brush become holy. And the priest answered and said, no, no, they don't come holy just by touching it. Okay. Then said Haggai, well, if one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these pots and pans and so on and so on and so on. In other words, uh, if you if anyone touched a dead body, that person was ceremonially unclean, and and they had to go through the ceremony to become clean again. So, a person, I would be ceremonially unclean, and I touch a pot or uh, whatever vessels they had here. If I touch them, will they be unclean too? And he said, yes. So it only goes one way. A clean thing does not make an unclean thing clean. But an unclean thing makes an, uh, does not make a, I'm sorry, if you're holy, it does not transfer to make something else holy. But if you are unclean, it does transfer. Everything sort of goes downhill. That's what I'm trying to say here. That's what the law said. Um, so if you're unclean, you touch something, that's unclean. But if you are holy, carrying something holy and you brush something, that doesn't get clean. And so you have a pretty good argument that says, well, I have a partner who's not a Christian. They are unholy. And I'm holy because I'm a Christian. Therefore, I should separate. That's the argument here. Paul says, no. He says, the higher law of marriage applies here. And we are under a new covenant. It's actually different. The presence of a Christian is a sanctifying influence on the union and on the family. A true, spirit-filled Christian is a powerful 
positive influence. It's like Peter said of the wives that she may win her husband without a word when he observes her chaste conversation coupled with fear. That word chaste, the base word from the word chaste is saint. So we could read it like this. It observes your saintly behavior. That puts a little bit of a a twist on it, doesn't it? Because at home, you are, you have saintly behavior in your homes. Right. (laughs) Well, so he observes your saintly behavior. And you might say, well, I'm no saint. Well, I understand that. But don't use that I'm no saint as an excuse for unbecoming behavior, not as an excuse. He says when he, the husband observes her saintly behavior coupled with fear. This is a woman who is sold out to her Lord and has none of her own agenda left. She is yielded to the Lord. She is filled with his spirit. Yes, she is wrestling with issues. Yes, she has so much to grow but she has surrendered to God. This woman, that woman, or that husband, it goes either way in this situation, will have a holy and a sanctifying influence on her spouse and her children. Because he said, else were your children unclean. But the influence of a True Christian is powerful, even if only one is in the home. Now, God does not promise that this will always succeed in winning the partner. But it does not indicate failure if the partner leaves. In other words, if the partner leaves, there does not have to be guilt on the partner that stays, on the Christian that stays. It's okay to let him go physically and emotionally and not inquire, incur any guilt on that. So in one short word, a brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases if he would choose to leave. Now here brings up one other common exception clause if you're familiar with the whole marriage, divorce and remarriage debate. Here is the one clause. A brother or sister is not under bondage if you are deserted by an unbelieving spouse or just simply deserted. A partner is deserted. A mate just simply walks out of the marriage and doesn't come back. In that case, they say, the marriage is void. It's the marriage bond is broken or nullified. It's no longer in effect. The the bond is gone. You've been deserted. You're not under bondage. So therefore, now you are free to remarry. Now, that is only an assumption that is made here. It does not say that. It's just not under bondage. Well, what does it mean they're not under bondage? The reason I don't believe that assumption is correct, that it contradicts everything else that we have in this chapter. 
Rather, the not under bondage means that since a mate, a spouse, it's a husband or a man, they went up to the marriage altar and they promised to be faithful until death and they promised to do specific things and take the weightier matters of life and, and whatever, whatever is in those vows. They have promised that. They have made a vow. If a partner leaves, that spouse that remains is not under bondage to fulfill that vow. It's impossible for them, and they are released from the guilt of fulfilling that vow. Is that something close to what you had, Linda, uh, Eldon? Not well. <laughs> so they are released from an obligation. They are not guilty for breaking the vows in marriage because of a situation out of their control. But they are not free to remarry because marriage is permanent. And God's goal in marriage is always reconciliation. Reconciliation. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shouldest save thy husband, or how knowest thy man, whether thou shouldest save thy wife? Now that can actually be taken both ways. If you live like a saint and you let them go peacefully without a big fight, you have more of a chance to save your husband or your wife. But it also could be the other way. He said, let them go. You don't know if you'll be successful in ever saving them. Just don't hang on to them. Don't make them stay. Don't try to do everything you can to make them stay because you don't know if you're going to win them anyhow. And so it can be taken either way. And I don't know which one exactly is meant there. So what's the conclusion to all this? Well, in Romans 12, verse 2, I'm going to paraphrase it. Don't allow the world to squeeze you into its mold, but allow God to to us into its mold, but allow God to transform us, to change us from the inside out so that we can clearly know what his will and purpose is in a world that is increasingly falling apart and increasingly threatening. And to do that with humility. Now, I... I don't have it itemized real good as far as this point and that point and the next point, so I hope you can get something from it. But I'd like to read one more quote that I found from Helen Rosevere that I thought would be a blessing for us in whichever state we are in. He said, if you think you have come to the mission field because you are a little better than the others or as the cream of your church or because of your medical degree, or for the service that you can render to the African church, or even for the souls you may see saved, you will fail. Remember, the Lord has only one purpose ultimately for each one of us, to make us more like Jesus. He is interested in your relationship with himself. Let him take you and mold you as he will. All the rest will take its rightful place and that can be whether we are single or whether we are married so that our lord to have his will with us